Cat Disgusted is a show about veterinary nursing. It is not a show about how to cure your sick pet. If your animal is sick, take it to the vet. Don't be a crazy person and use a podcast to cure your puking cat, dog, chinchilla, etc., etc. I think they would tell you the same thing. If they could. Mm, Which they can't. Which makes it hard. You know what's up. Take them to the vet. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Cat Disgusted, a podcast for veterinary technicians and the people and animals who love them. Each episode, we explore the best of times and the worst of times in veterinary nursing. I'm your host, Nicole Dickerson. I'm an RVT working in emergency and critical care. BTSCCC. And this is what happens. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Cat Disgusted. Um, I realize this is a bit of a special episode. Uh, we've made it to forty. Uh, this is our this is the fortieth time that I've talked into this microphone to you all about things that are gross and things that are cool. Uh, having to do with veterinary medicine. And as I felt when I turned 40, which was stunned and slightly uh, elated, I kind of feel the same way about this. I'm stoked that uh, that we've recorded this many of them. So uh, hooray, hooray for us, us being me and my computer and my big-ass fat black cat named Prince. Uh, so the thing I want to start with uh, today is an update that has to do with me with your host uh which you know is is a thing that I feel like is is necessary for me to do when things change in my life I feel like it it, it affects what I talk about on here and uh, and this very much does and so um I changed jobs boy have I ever <laughs> I've changed paths uh in my career and so i thought i would do it during a global pandemic because i thought that that would just make it a little bit more fun and a little bit more interesting um so what have i done done with myself i was offered a position as technician supervisor at a large university laboratory and i took the gig so i'm doing something very different now uh large animals is my focus in the laboratory uh it's a lot of different species now by large animals i feel like i should be specific because people are often like whoa cows (laughs) no there's no cows in the lab well not in this one uh but a large animal meaning anything bigger than a mouse or a rat of course, it is possible that I'll be involved with the little guys. Uh, the rodent team is what those technicians are called. Uh, but yeah, new gig. So new job. Uh, new job includes things like anesthesia, uh, lab protocols, uh, protocol meaning what the what the investigators and lab technicians are primarily focused on studying. That's called the protocol and how those are approved, uh, staffing for those, uh, working with human doctors, PhD candidates, people with multiple PhDs, uh, university staff uh, with IACUC, which stands for, it, it's a, it sounds like I'm saying a weird foreign word, but it's actually a bunch of letters together, I-A-C-U-C. And what that stands for is the Institutional Animal Care and Use committee 
they're a very important institution that uh, is in control of the welfare of the animals that are used in laboratories all over the country. Um, ALAS is another weird word, A-A-L-A-S, uh, which stands for the American Association for Laboratory, Laboratory Animal Science. Um, as you can see, I'm still tripping over all these words. It's all super new. Um, so you guys are going to be learning with me a little bit, I'm afraid. So I, I'm, it's, it's a way crazy place for me to be after doing, um, ER veterinary technician work for as long as I have, you know, I'm, I'm changing focus here and it's, uh, it's new. It's exciting. Uh, it's interesting being the new kid in the room again, you know, uh, knowing the least amount of everybody. <laughs> um, I'm going to pursue a couple different certifications while I'm there. A lot like an RVT license, lab technicians have certifications that um, encompass knowledge about things like humidity and temperature. That's ideal for different species, pharmacology for different species, um, surgical procedures, because in lab animal medicine, technicians can do surgery, which is a big difference between the world that I have been living in and the world that I've just now arrived in. So, you know, I, I feel like I should talk about why I made this change a little bit, um, this job literally fell into my life. Um, it's not something that I had ever thought to seek out or ever thought to pursue. Well, I guess that's not entirely true. I mean, like the lab animal medicine world has fascinated me, but I never really had a touchstone for that. I didn't know anybody directly who had worked in it. I just kind of knew anecdotally one of my teachers in tech school worked for a, a laboratory. So, you know, there's like little bits and pieces that I knew, but I never actively was pursuing that. Um but what I did actively pursue was getting my VTS in emergency and critical care. And I have to say that opened up a lot of opportunities for me. That opened up a lot of doors into worlds that I had not had access to before. Uh, one of those things was that I was giving lectures at a conference in Reno. Uh, that was last October. And it was there while I was giving those lectures. One of my lectures was attended by the associate director of the university's laboratory. And she basically recruited me. You know, she gave me her email. She answered a bunch of my questions. And she said, we think that you'd be a really good fit. You're motivated and interested in scientific things and we think you'd be great. And so I had a lot of time to think about this. You know, I, I went, I, I drove, I made a, I made a long drive to Spring Creek, Nevada to visit um, one of my best friends, my old college roommate way out there. But I had nine hours <laughs> to drive between Spring Creek, Nevada, back to my home in, uh, in the Bay Area to think about this. And during that long drive, you know, my, I kind of came to the conclusion of, well, what the hell? <laughs> that was my my grand conclusion to all that thinking. So, uh, you know, I I made the application, and and after a very long and arduous process, they uh, they took me on. So, you know, I I feel like I love science so much. You know, I love human medicine. This is like human medicine adjacent. You know, there's. There's so much for me to learn in this setting that has to do with the type of sciences that I love without me having to be a human doctor. 
you know, the type of studies that I'm involved in, like, you know, a perfect example is these injections of a biological polymer scaffold that impregnates ischemic myocardium with stem cells to repair a myocardial infarction that's months old. Now, it doesn't that sound like just crazy, advanced crazy? Um, Because it is like, there are things that studies that I will be involved in that are like difficult for me to wrap my mind around. And it's been a long time since I've had science that's so advanced like that, that it's that I lose track of what it is. And I'm like Googling phrases and Googling terms and trying to like put the pieces together as to exactly what, what, what the hell's going on, you know, and that's, that's being the new kid in the room, you know, the one with the most to learn, you know, I've, I'm, I'm sitting in with uh, their DVMs, their uh, residents, and they're studying for their specialty in laboratory science, laboratory animal science. And so they're having these study sessions with the boarded veterinarians who already work at the university. And I get to be a part of those. I just get to sit in and like listen to all the stuff they're studying about like diseases that affect various species from sheep to um, this crazy thing, this crazy frog called a Xenopus lavis. I think I'm saying that right. Levis, lavis, Xenopus lavis, the genus and species of a type of African clawed frog um, that used to, it got famous because it used to be used as a pregnancy test in humans. They would use human urine with these frogs. And if the frog laid eggs and you knew you were pregnant because that was its response to human gonadotropin. Amazing. It's not what they're used for today in this particular setting. Now they're used for like a calcium channel study, uh, which is also fascinating to me because I just submitted an article about calcium channel blocker and beta blocker toxicity in dogs and cats. And so I'm like, this tech was telling me about these frogs and and the calcium channel study. And I'm just like, oh my God, I know all about that. I have so many questions. Oh, look up the protocol. The investigator is this name, blah, blah, blah. And there's like, you know, I can look up 20 pages of an advanced study on these African clawed frogs, which I had never heard of up until until now. Uh, It was an adventure I couldn't pass up uh, to be in that kind of a setting. So, this this changes things, right? I mean, this cha- this changes things in in many ways in my life. But you know, it, it changes things in in a lot of aspects in outside of my work life. Um, besides learning how to intubate literally every animal on the difficult intubation list, <laughs> um, this gig fosters caution. Uh, with who I can share the details of my day. I'm directly involved in the science that saves lives. Not everyone will see it that way. Um, As an emergency veterinary technician, you feel like you're doing good in the world every day, or at least you try to do good in the world every day. I wouldn't have taken this gig if I didn't feel the same way about what I go to work to do every day now. But there are people in my life who don't see the science that way. So I respect that. And for that reason, I have to be careful. Um, I haven't 
entirely left emergency. You know, it's it's my home. It's it's a place that I will always love. You know, I'm still involved. And although COVID-19 has screwed up my speaking gigs for the year, I'm still writing articles. I'm helping candidates prepare for their VTS exam. Uh, there are perks of my new schedule, you know, like when, uh, when I'm on this schedule, one of the perks is that I've got more time and more headspace to be more involved in things that are, that are VTS related. Um, I'm home to cook dinner every night. (laughs) What, what's that? (laughs) What is that foreign concept? Um, you know, Steven Seitel, who is a prominent VTS persona that those technicians listening to this podcast will recognize, he said something that really meant something to me when I was uh, considering this gig is that, you know, lab animal medicine is something that technicians can age into. Uh It's advanced, it's complicated, uh, it's often in institutions that allow technicians a chance to retire. The position that I'm in now is not something that I could have done without all of the years of studying and experience and acquiring advanced skills. Um, it's, It's not something I could have done without all those things. And so, you know, I, I, I don't want you to fret. We have not left, um, we've not left the emergency world. You know, I've got a whole log of emergency stories that I have to get through uh, on this podcast. But, you know, I think that this is going to open up an, an opportunity to cover the crossover sciences. You know, the things that are happening right now that connect the dots between human medicine and animal medicine. And that I am now on that cusp. Like I literally ride that line every day as to where these two worlds cross over. And I'm going to be exposed to all kinds of new things and new um, areas of study and new parts of anatomy and creatures that I, I will learn about every day. Like I feel like every day, every day I go into work and I'm like, what's this? <laughs> Which is a place that I haven't been in in a really long time. And I'm really excited about that. And that unfortunately does bring me to begrudgingly COVID-19. Uh, I know. I, I really didn't want to talk about it. But um, then I read this article that was about this very interesting thing. And now I'm like, oh, God damn it. So now I have to talk about it. So the article that I read, uh, it was in the New York Times. My mother sent it to me. She sent me this article because it was about this strange phenomenon that we're seeing with these COVID-19 patients in emergency rooms. Um, and it's, it's these extreme cases of hypoxemia that these patients are experiencing. Um, I'm going to include the link to this article in the podcast notes so that you guys can look it up yourself because I do think it's a really good read. Um, and pulse oximetry, that's something that all veterinary technicians use every day. Um, everyone's got a firsthand understanding of uh, how crazy this disease is just by working with pulse oximetry every day. So what's happening is... Uh, that's a the having a pulse oximetry meeting your SpO2 that's a reading that patients are routinely getting in human ERs especially with this disease because it causes a pneumonia. So what's happening is patients are coming into emergency rooms 
they're getting this oxygen level tested by wearing that little you know that little clip that goes on the on your index finger you'll see that in in uh, Grey's Anatomy episodes a whole lot um they're experiencing a silent hypoxemia the pneumonia that we're seeing that's caused by this virus is causing oxygen levels to be dangerously low without people knowing that that's happening. So they can be sick for days with this really low oxygen level, and then then they'll lose their capability to breathe. Their shortness of breath is what brings them to the ER, but by that time, they're in crisis. And it's like you can't intubate them fast enough. You can't ventilate them fast enough because they're literally dying in front of you. We're going to talk about the details of how this works, but just so you have a little bit of an idea as we get into it, a normal SpO2 reading on these machines is 94 to 100. COVID-19 patients are coming into emergency rooms with levels as low as 50. Now, when that happens to us in the animal ER, we think that the machine is broken. Like we often will say to each other, "Mm, not compatible with life. And so then we just kind of discount what that level is. But human medicine, you know... They've got a lot more check systems that are in place, so they could compare that to an arterial oxygen level, which we're not always able to do in the animal ER, and they can verify that, yes, indeed, that person walked in with a level of 50. So what we're going to do is we're going to learn about what pulse oximetry is and why this phenomenon uh, that we're seeing with these COVID-19 patients is so weird. So what does it do? Uh, The pulse oximeter, it's a non-invasive way of measuring the amount of oxygen that's carried by the hemoglobin in the red blood cells. Uh, It's a relatively easy and a useful way um, to monitor the patient's ability to perfuse their tissues with oxygen uh, because it is something that just clips onto your finger or just clips onto a mucous membrane in the veterinary world. And what it's doing is it's emitting two different wavelengths of light and it's passing through the tissue bed. Now there's one uh, wavelength that's a red light and there's one that's infrared. The red one is the one that you can see and sometimes you can see it if you look at the Grey's Anatomy episode carefully. Uh, The infrared light is the one that's measuring your oxygen saturation. The red light is the one that gives you a pulse rate. And you can hear that sometimes on, you know, on on anesthesia machines, you hear the beep, 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 beep. That's That's the red light giving you the pulse rate from that machine. Now, blood that is less oxygenated has a darker color than blood containing a high saturation of oxygen. And when that blood is less oxygenated with its darker color, that means it's going to absorb more light. Uh, Blood with more oxygen is a brighter color. It absorbs less light. Uh, So what that means is more light is going to be sensed by the detector on the other side. It's going to give you a higher percentage reading. Now we've seen this in horror movies and for the veterinary technicians in the horror movie of our lives. (laughs) That If you have blood that's spurting from an artery, it's a lot brighter red. So if you do a blood draw on a patient, um, it doesn't even have to be from an artery, actually. If you do a blood draw on a patient that's intra-op, so they're in surgery, so they've been under gas anesthesia for a while, means that they've been breathing 100% oxygen, that blood is a lot brighter red color uh, than it would be if they were just breathing room air. Now, the most common type of probe that we come across in uh, veterinary ER is the clip, which means the light source is on one side, photo detector on the other. You want to put it on 
the tongue in anesthetized animals or obtunded animals. Uh, it monitors the lingual artery. That's where you're trying to get towards. Other places you can put it, you can put it on the ear or the lip, uh, rectal mucosa, um, toe webs, uh, base of the tail even you can sometimes do. I've seen it on the Achilles tendon in donks that have a kind of a skinny, skinny back leg. Um, it can be tricky when animals are moving about because that probe doesn't stay still and you can't say, excuse me, doggy, will you please allow this probe to sit in a peaceful way on your lip? Um, what you really are aiming for is a thin, hairless, non-pigmented area. Mucous membrane is best because that allows the light to pass from uh, the source to the sensor. So now, what does this number mean, right? Uh, SpO2 stands for saturation of peripheral oxygen. And since the pulse oximeter probe is measuring a peripheral artery, that's commonly how we're going to um, refer to this value. Now, I've mentioned before um, that the uh, saturation of oxygen that's normal on room air is between 95 and 99 now, it's important that we designate room air because a patient under general anesthesia, they're getting 100% oxygen. And therefore, there is no reason why your SpO2 reading shouldn't be 95 or above uh, because 100% oxygen, it, it would be something happening with the patient's tissues if 100% oxygen isn't delivering that normal value. And uh, the reason why we care about this has to do with a terrifying graph called the oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. Now, this is the part where this terrifying graph is difficult to look at on a podcast. I think what I can do is I'll put it on the Facebook page or I can put it in the notes somewhere so you guys can have a look at this thing. Um, for those of you who are more nerdy nerd inclined, you'll want to kind of look at this as I'm talking about it. Um, but the reason why it's called the oxyhemoglobin disassociation association curve is because in this circumstance to disassociate is a good thing. Normally I feel like the connotation for disassociating with something is like a bad thing. Like you unfriend somebody on Facebook, you've disassociated yourself from that person. But in this case, disassociation means you're giving away oxygen. It's a good thing. We want oxygen in the tissues. So to disassociate oxygen into tissues is a good thing. Um, the graph illustrates two values. You have your SpO2, which is the percentage we just talked about, and then it also compares it to the partial pressure of arterial oxygen. Now, that's what in human medicine we have a lot more access to than we do in animal medicine. Of course, specialty services are going to be doing arterial blood gases all the time, but not everywhere is like that. Um, but this is the way that we compare those two things. Now, we can we can still make use of this graph even if we don't know this arterial uh, this arterial blood gas value, and I will tell you why. So on room air, your reading of 95 to 100, that approximately equals a partial pressure of arterial oxygen between 85 and 100. That is on room air. Now, when a patient is receiving 100% oxygen, that value can rise up as high as 500. So on the graph, you'll see that it starts to plateau. Like the upper part of it starts to kind of just not get any higher. It gets as high as it goes, and then it just kind of just kind of flatlines. Um, that plateauing happens. Uh, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. But what it does is it shows you how how things can change very, very quickly behind where that starts to plateau. So 
let's think about this as it relates to anesthesia, because I always think that's kind of the easiest place to start with this particular graph. Um, if our anesthetized patient has the little clip on its lip and that little machine is beeping away and is giving us a reading of 90% in comparison to the arterial oxygen, that can be as low as 60. Okay. Now remember, you compare that to how high it can be with 100% oxygen. Remember, it can be as high as like 500. If your guy is on 100% oxygen and that pulse ox is 90, that's a low, low arterial oxygen. So that's something to be concerned with. Um, there are a couple things that affect this curve. Temperature affects the curve. Um, those of us who work in veterinary medicine know it takes a lot longer for cold animals to wake up. And that's because they're not disassociating their oxygen into their tissues as quickly as they could. Um, so I talk about this because, you know, it's a, we don't always have to get our arterial blood sample to know that something's going on. And it really is just a, a significant change that you want to be aware of when the pulse ox is dropping that low. Sometimes it fell off. I mean, that's the easiest fix, right? It's giving, it's giving you a pulse ox of the towel. That's why it says 85. But if you're under anesthesia and things are relatively well controlled, then that might give you a reason to think about it. Pink does also not equal oxygenated. You know, you'll hear, you'll uh, on people, they'll look at the bed of your nails. Um, on animals, you look at their gum color. And if they're pink, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're oxygenating well because you don't start to turn blue till your pulse ox reading is dropping below 85. And so if you're seeing a blue surgery patient, ugh, sound the alarm, five alarm alert, because, you know, there's no reason we should be that cyanotic. Um, on 100% oxygen. Here's some weird things that you can impress your friends with. So um, one thing that we can see is called methemoglobinemia. Now, I talk about methemoglobinemia because it's a weird thing. And in the emergency, we like weird. Um, the mucous membranes in this case with methemoglobinemia are turning a dusky color. Remember cyanosis? We were talking about the, how, you know, pink doesn't equal oxygenated. You turn blue when your oxygen starts getting real low. This particular syndrome mimics cyanosis. Um, these animals, they're at risk of hypoxemia because the red blood cells have a reduced ability to carry oxygen. Um, but it's for a different reason. So we're going to talk a little bit about hemoglobin. Hemoglobin, it's made up of four polypeptide chains or globins. They're attached to a heme molecule, hemoglobin. Um, if you look up pictures of it, it actually would make a really cool tattoo. It's like these little globin things surrounding this little molecule, little four little peptide guys that are all curly cues. Um, Heme has a central iron molecule. Now that'll sound familiar, right? Because you take iron supplements for anemia. So this is an iron is an integral part of your red blood cell. Um, it has to be maintained. The iron in our bodies has to be in the hemoglobin has to be maintained in a particular state. They call it a ferrous state. And if you're looking at it notated, it means that it's able to bind to oxygen and it's Fe2 plus is how you'll see it. Now, when that iron molecule is oxidized, it goes into what's called a ferric state, which is a different number, Fe3+. Now that's inactive. 
Now that inactive form of hemoglobin, that is now creating something called met hemoglobin. It's not the same thing. The red blood cell gets darker and the blood can turn this really eerie chocolate brown color. So the chocolate brown blood with its inactive form of hemoglobin, that's met hemoglobin. Now, uh, I've seen this before and it's really unusual. Now, the th- one thing that can cause this is a, uh, a toxicity. So what we saw was a little Westie, little West Highland ter- Terrier, West Highland Terrier had come into the emergency. He was there because the owners were like, he's blue. And we were like, oh my God, he's blue. It's going to be, but the dog walked in like walked in, like, didn't look like he was in immediate respiratory distress, which is 99% of the time when you hear about a blue animal coming in, that's what you're seeing. He seemed relatively unconcerned. Now, the owner said that while they were out of the house, this dog had knocked over one of the kid's backpacks and a bottle of Tylenol had fallen out and he had chewed up this bottle. And they didn't know how many tablets were in the bottle, but they were there were none that were on the floor. So they were pretty sure that this little Westie had eaten what remained in this bottle of Tylenol. Now, a healthy animal does have a level of met hemoglobin in their body. Like a healthy animal does oxidize hemoglobin to met hemoglobin, but the amounts are small enough that um, you've got these protective mechanisms in your body. You make a enzyme called met hemoglobin reductase. That prevents this from causing a problem because it breaks it down. We get into trouble when those mechanisms are overwhelmed. One way to overwhelm your met hemoglobin reductase is by eating a bottle of Tylenol, <laughs> which is an acetaminophen toxicity. And so this little we- this little Westie had eaten so much acetaminophen that he'd overwhelmed his body's ability to get rid of all the met hemoglobin that he was now making because of the acetaminophen, and he turned this grayish dusky blue. It was very eerie. And we drew his blood when we placed his IV catheter and it was this chocolate brown color. All of us were like, what is this? And we put the pieces together and figured out that's what he was suffering from. Now he did spend the night in the oxygen cage, but because even though he wasn't stressed and in like respiratory distress, his blood literally cannot carry the oxygen to to his tissues very well. So he had to be on some support there. Um, There is a rare congenital condition that you'll see well, maybe not that you'll see, but that can happen called met hemoglobin reductase deficiency. And that's actually the thing that's more common in human medicine than it is in animal medicine. Um, and that just means that that enzyme, that's your rescue for met hemoglobinemia. You just don't make enough of it or any of it at all. And so that met hemoglobin can build up in your body and can make you into a blue baby. And apparently in human medicine, that's much more likely that you'll hear like a reference to these blue babies. And that's because they've got this weird congenital um, met hemoglobin reductase deficiency. So the pulse ox world, it's, as you can see, it's one that's, it's a fairly standard measurement that we get um, when we're looking at the vital signs of both humans and animals. And so why is this COVID-19 patient screwing this up, right? I mean, like they should be distressed. They're walking around, they're FaceTiming their family members, they're conscious. And that level of oxygen in their blood is crazy low. And by the time that they feel like it's low, like by the time they're short of breath, it's too late. Like they're, they're in shock, 
they're grunting to breathe. It's terrible. So why is this? Well, we think that why this is, um, even though they have these levels are that are like incompatible with life, uh, the coronavirus, what it's doing is it's attacking the lung cells that make surfactant. And this is the substance that helps the, um, it helps the little air sacs that are in your lungs, your alveoli, it helps those stay open between breaths. And that's what's critical for lung function. So when you think of a drowning victim and they've inhaled all this water, um, that surfactant is a lot of what goes away because the water just literally washes it away, damages it, collapses those alveoli. The inflammation from the COVID patients, that causes a pneumonia. It causes the air sacs to collapse, and then your oxygen levels are going to fall. So that all makes sense. The difference is, is that the lungs are initially remaining what we call compliant, which means that they move easily. Um, non-compliant lungs, you can think of something like um, like an emphysema patient. You know, they they are on all the supplemental oxygen. Their lung or a smoker, like somebody who's suffering from you know like smoker lung, their lungs have become really stiff and they've become just like chunks that don't move around. They're non-compliant. That's what makes them hard to get air in and out of their body and for them to process oxygen. That's not what these COVID-19 patients experience initially. For days, they're walking around, well, maybe not walking around, but for days they experience this pneumonia, but their lungs are still compliant. So they don't feel stiff. They don't feel heavy with fluid or with damage. And so you're still able to expel carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide is what makes you feel short of breath when you can't get carbon dioxide. That's what triggers um, your body to breathe is a buildup of carbon dioxide. So because you're able to expel that, you don't feel short of breath until far along in the process. And then you start to feel short of breath. You come into emergency and you can't, they can't save you. It's, you're compensating for this low oxygen in your blood. In fact, I not, I think it, I'm not sure if it was in this article or not, but they are now thinking that maybe it's a good idea if you've had COVID-19 and you've recovered that you should actually wear a pulse oximeter for two weeks after you've recovered from this disease. And this is why is because it's doing this really crazy thing where it's allowing you to walk around your daily life with this really low oxygen level. I find this terrifying. The fact that we're seeing levels on these patients that are low enough that in my emergency world, I would say this machine's broken, but it's actually true. That is scary. So I hope that I've given you a little bit of insight there as to the strangeness of what this is and the strangeness of our lives at the moment and why it's so weird. I mean, it's weird for many reasons. Global pandemic, that's weird. But the disease is not normal. It is also it is also weird. And a lot of my job at the university right now is adapting the lab to this new normal. Social distancing, face shields navigating the occupational safety and health department. Um, They're forever updating their protocols because things keep changing. And of course, COVID-19 research is prioritized. Um, We all watch, we all meaning me and my colleagues, all watch the human hospital staff rush around in their N95s. We all use a health screening tool to come to work every day. 
this virus is going to be with us for a cool minute. I don't like that. Um, I have a lot of problems with that. Um, just with my own sanity, because I like people and I like interacting with people and my friends, and I can't do that in a way that I want to. But you know, this because this is going to be with us, I feel like my entry into dealing with this crisis is to understand it. Um, I'm going to understand it through the avenues that I have. Um, I'm going to share what I learn with all of you so that we can all understand it and deal with this a little bit better in our lives. I really want to thank you guys for listening as long as you have, because we've talked about some complicated stuff this time around, but I think it's important for us to realize that not only is the virus complicated, but our lives are also going to be complicated. And now more than ever, it's best to understand how best we can take care of ourselves and each other. And uh, also, now more than ever, because I work next to a human emergency room, (laughs) don't come and see me at work. (laughs) Be well, everybody. Like a virus, patient hunter, I'm waiting for you. I'm starving for you.